you're listening to The Cat Who Did a Podcast with me, Susan Romsdorf-Terry, and... Luke Romsdorf-Terry, where we read a book from the prolific Cat Who Murder series and discuss it. For this, our very first episode, we'll introduce the author of this mystery staple, the reclusive Lillian Jackson Braun. Now, what was your first exposure to uh, LJB or Lillian Jackson Braun <laughs> and the Cat Who book, Susan? So for me, I'm pretty sure that I stole one off my mother's nightstand probably around late elementary school, middle school. <laughs> um, I started collecting them in high school, and they were my version of Pokemon. Got to get them all. There were so many of them, even by that point. But I really stopped after I graduated from college, and the last book came out while I was in grad school. Um, I remember reading it, but I don't remember liking it. And I haven't really returned to them since until very recently when I was in need of a comfort read and mm-hmm. decided they'd be a good thing to come back to. And what about you? Uh, well, for me, it's uh, my grandmother was a very big reader, and she did love murder mysteries on my dad's side, my Grammy. And there were times when I would especially in the summer or winter, uh, she would watch me while my parents were at work. She had many bookshelves of many different books, and there were all, uh, I didn't know the author who it was, I just remember that the covers were a lot of fun to look at and read the back uh, of some of them, but I just always remember the covers, and I somehow thought they were maybe books about a cartoon cat, like a Felix or a Garfield, which very clearly they are not, (laughs) uh, as you have said. So seeing them, and then uh, once we were packing up, I think it was the first move to uh, our second apartment together. Yes, our second apartment together when, oh, you have all these books, and you said they're a complete set, and I didn't realize there was that many of them. Well, it's not a technically a complete set. I, like I said, I stopped collecting. Um, I'm probably missing nine or ten of them, um, although I am closer now that I've picked up a copy of the parody edition. So how many books are there in the series, then? There are 29 official books in the series. There is a parody edition, and then there are a handful of short story collections and a couple of cookbooks, because, as you'll see, food plays a major role throughout this series. Now, who was Lillian Jackson Braun? Who was the author of these books? So the author of these books is famously reclusive, to the point that her date of birth was actually... Increased by three years. It was originally printed that she was born in 1910, and she didn't correct anybody until 2005. And remember, she died in 2011. So through most of her life and career, everyone thought she was three years older than she actually was. And she held on to that for a, let she, that go for a while. She decided she didn't care until 2005. She herself started writing poetry for the Detroit News. It was sports poetry. And she later held the position of good living editor with the Detroit Free Press for 30 years, starting in 1948 until her retirement in 1978. Jeez. The woman was prolific already. She wrote that the first... That was her first career. That was her first... Yeah, you know, that was... First career minimum. She was born in 1913, so that's probably second career. Wow, yeah. There, She wow. would have had to do something. She would, probably did uh, some kind of journalism or home front reporting uh, during World War Local II. paper or something. Exactly. Who knows? This, is, this is the information that she, that she, uh, she does give to the public. Uh, she wrote her first Cat Who novel in 1966, and she wrote a set of three before completely stopping and returning to focus on her uh, on her remainder of time with uh, De- with the Detroit Free Press. There is an assumption that one of the reasons she stopped writing had to do with people demanding that 
mystery novels had to include more sex and violence and hers were simply too uh, too wholesome. Now, I question that because mystery novels have always included a lot of sex and violence. Oh, and as I, th- I think you're go- we're going to say when we do the first book, there's a really gruesome murder that I remember yeah, you telling me about. She, her, her murders are not cozy. They are very violent in many cases. They're very personal in a lot of cases. There's all of, almost all of them that I can remember off the top of my head right now, I would say are pretty personal murders, which which to me make them more gruesome. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, yes, she doesn't have a lot of sex in her books. There is some implied, but it's very much behind closed doors kind of, kind of sex. Type. Fade to black, exactly. So I question that being a thing and knowing that she would, you know, she would change information in interviews or uh, decide that she didn't like some interviews, some information or have it removed. You know, who knows what the reasons would have been. She might have said that in one interview and then decided not to say it in another and off we would have gone. And you say that she then wrote another series of books. Well, it, not not another series, but there was a 20-year gap. There is, yes. She didn't write again. She didn't write another Cat Who mystery specifically. She obviously wrote a lot. Um, but she didn't write another Cat Who mystery until 1986, which was the Cat Who Saw Red. And from this point on, 1986 until 2007, she published a book a year. And those first couple of years, the new publisher that she had managed to find actually reissued the original three books so that they became part of the whole series. And originally, there was supposed to be a final novel, uh, The Cat Who Smelled Smoke, and it was originally due to come out in 2011. Um, but of course, she died. So the, the book was put on hold, thinking that it might be finished posthumously. Um, and then it was put on hold again, and then finally it was canceled by the publisher. Hmm. So the, the, the last book that we know of never actually came into being. It's in a vault somewhere, then, we can only assume. Or her husband burned it. Who knows? <laughs> because her husband, uh, at least um, at least when she died, she was survived by her second husband. Is he still with us? I haven't actually looked him up. Um, he is, but he is the one that if you look in the in most of the books, they are uh, they are inscribed to Earl Bettinger, the husband who, and that is her <laughs> second husband who she does give a lot of credit to, encouraging her to find a new publisher for the Cat Who books and to start writing them again. Good on him for doing that and good on her for writing with so many. Absolutely. Now, what makes her such a unique writer compared to so many other mystery writers that are out there? What makes her stand out in your mind? In my mind, she's one of the originators of the uh, the so-called cozy mystery trend of human and animal crime-solving teams. Uh, she actively updates her books and characters, which keeps them modern even as the characters don't actually age significantly. So you can pick up a book today and it doesn't feel like you're entering, at least if you're reading one of the later books, it doesn't feel like you're entering a world that's that far away from our own. Definitely reading some of these early books, it's very clear they were written in the 60s, and she wasn't quite as concerned very clearly with these first three books about making them as timeless. But once she started writing, um, right around The Cat Who Played Brahms, I believe, which is book five, she really started to make an effort to keep her characters contemporary to the point that she was writing them. So that makes her, that I think makes her very unique. A lot of times when you read some of these other cozy mystery writers, they're holding on to that same period of time. Nobody ages, no, uh, no main characters really die, but they're all stuck in this time loop. 
Now we're going to jump ahead a little bit with one of the questions because we're on a good topic, uh, which <laughs> is a good phrase, and that is a cozy mystery. Yes. What is a cozy mystery, since that may be a phrase some people may be very familiar with, but some people may be hearing it for the first time. <laughs> so a cozy mystery, at least according to Wikipedia, is a subgenre of crime fiction in which sex and violence occur offstage. The detective is an amateur sleuth, and the crime and detection take place usually in small, socially intimate communities. So you're, you're Miss Marples. You're Miss Marples, Jessica Fletcher. Mm. Oh, yes. Yes, um, yes, yes. At least when at least when her mysteries take place in Cabot Cove, not so much when she goes to New York City or wherever else. She's traveling to meet one of her 18 nep- nieces and nephews. <laughs> Is that how many you counted? No, somebody else did on Wikipedia. Oh, wow. They tracked down and figured out exactly how... They figured out how many murders they, they had per capita in Cabot Cove. They also figured out exactly how many nieces and nephews this had, this woman had to have. Well, it's a very high murder rate, too, for such a small town, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Like a- at least. I, I didn't look it up. I didn't look at that today, that today, so I don't remember what it was. But it's a very, very high murder rate for Cabot Cove. So with the cozy mystery and with that, where does Lillian Jackson Braun stand in both the idea of a cozy mystery and then also what makes you unique in a field that, uh, you know, we mentioned, of course, Agatha Christie, a very prolific female writer, but it's a, uh, it's a genre that's mostly dominated by men. Well, I wouldn't say that cozy mysteries are dominated by men. Um, I would say that the, the mystery genre, the mystery genre certainly is. Yes, no, true. The cozy mystery and why that became a subgenre is because it was predominantly written by and about women. It's very much your Miss Marple type of mystery. It's uh, a woman in a small town. Uh, it's usually an amateur. There is, um, that is, that is the biggest difference between, you know, Miss Marple and Jessica Fletcher and Hercule Poirot and Philip Marlowe. Um, Marlowe and Poirot are professional investigators. I was going to say, do they qualify since they're actual, prof- like, professionals? So that's why, well, that's why Poirot and Marlowe are different because they are professionals versus Marple and Jessica Fletcher, who we'll use as an example a lot. um, They're amateurs. They're not, they they are not professional crime solvers in any way, shape or form. They're simply nosy. And that whole (laughs) idea of the nosy person is, is something that particularly in this subgenre is allocated primarily to women. Like we said, Miss Marple, mm-hmm. Jessica Fletcher. Uh, another good example of this that's actually very similar to Lillian Jackson Braun style is Rita Mae Brown and the Sneaky Pie Brown Mysteries, Southern crime-solving duo with a cat. There was a point in time where you were either a Sneaky Pie Brown or a Cat Who person. Very few people really liked both. Most team people, pie, team, team Pie, Team, team Cat. Yes, Team Pie, <laughs> Team Coco, however you wanted to do it. But what makes Lillian Jackson Braun unique is that while she's writing in a particularly cozy style, she's writing about a man. And that is distinctive. Usually you have, like I said, usually the cozy mysteries feature a woman. So to be writing that kind of environment about a man makes her very unique in the field. And she's also writing about, you know, a man who is an amateur. She's not writing about a retired police sergeant, which is what a lot of pseudo, of so-called amateur um, male mystery fiction is about. It's, you know, it's that retired cop. It's that retired, um, retired investigator. Quillerin is an investigative journalist, but he's not actually a cop. He is simply nosy. <laughs> and this is a phrase that she herself uses about him throughout the books, that he is simply nosy. Again, to use this term towards a man, which would normally be used towards a woman. I'm going to be calling him Star-Lord at least once or twice in this because it pops up, even though they're spelled very differently. So, (laughs) 
Now, we talked about cozy mysteries. This is a term that uh, a librarian friend of yours coined, which is bonbon versus meatloaf books. Yes. Shout out to John Davis for the for that wonderful phrasing. And now, what does that mean, and where do these fall in those? I would define these, and John defined these as meatloaf books. You know what's in them. Mm-hmm. You know where they're going. There is, there's not really going to be much of a surprise in a meatloaf book, but you're going to walk away satisfied. A bonbon book may have some surprises, but it's not necessarily going to leave you satisfied. Um, for me, a bonbon book is um, a really obvious mystery um, where they're either writing about more about the setting than they are about the the actual crime solving or a romance novel where it's all about the sex and not about the story. Sorry, I... A Harlequin or Penny novel like And not always those either. I will defend Harlequin novels. We've had this conversation before and you're absolutely right. (laughs) But, you know, just for as many good Harlequin novels as Mm -hmm. you can find that are, in fact, very satisfying, I still wouldn't necessarily call them a a true meatloaf book. There are exceptions, but for the most part, (laughs) they... Most of those shorter romance novels that are really all about the sex... Mm -hmm. um, or what I'd call a bonbon book versus a meatloaf book. It's components. It's a meal you know you're going. It's a meal you've had a dozen times before, if not hundreds of mm-hmm. times before. You know what it's going to be. It's going to, like you said, leave you satisfied. You know what the taste is going to be, mm-hmm. but you still look forward to it. Absolutely, it's still going to be delicious. Now you said the last book came out in two thousand and seven. The background of these books. Before we kind of ask this question, what's the little bit more of the background? You mentioned that it takes place in the big city. A nameless big city, a nameless metropolis. But then it moves to a small town that's called... The small town is called Pickaxe. It's never really defined where Pickaxe is. There is a fan theory that it's uh, an amalgamation of Bad Axe, Michigan, and a couple other little towns up by the Canadian border. Um, We know that Pickaxe is uh, near one of the Great Lakes. Uh, We know that uh, you can technically see across the lake to Canada. So that, you know, Bad Axe is probably in an appropriate location. But the the popular slogan of Pickaxe is 400 miles north of everywhere. (laughs) Um, And once we get up there, then we'll also start running into other towns, most notably the town of Burr. So no, because it's the coldest spot in the county. So as much as I enjoy these early novels for a great demonstration of what her writing style is, it's it's pretty clear that the the early novels were her attempt to write a modern crime crime fiction. Mm-hmm. Versus when she started writing again, you have one more book that's set in the big city, and then the switch happens and everything goes up to uh, to pickaxe and Moose County, as it's called. Moose County. Yes, it's Moose County. Uh, once he goes to Moose County, that's really when the meatloafy part of the uh, part of the series kicks in, and it's a very different world that she's writing in up there. And it's very obvious the difference between her writing styles when she's writing uh, urban crime fiction versus writing uh, country crime, crime fiction. wonder what made her make that change if that was where she wanted to go originally, but the publisher wanted to, you know, we don't know, unfortunately, because as you say, she was so reclusive of interviews. Exactly. And this does give a little bit of credence to the idea that they wanted more sex and violence in her, you know, mm. books that were set in cities. Because um, that was, of course, what everyone thought of the inner cities in the 60s. It, they were just full of sex, crime and violence. Oh, yeah. Could these books exist in a 2020 world, not like a COVID world, which you know, <laughs> we're, we're now dating the podcast, we're still in the middle of a pandemic, but in a modern world where there's internet and where there's, uh, you know, fiber optics and cell phones and everything else, could these books still exist in, in a modern world? 
I really think so. And again, that has to do with the way that she wrote them. When you track the story throughout uh, throughout the entire 29 book series, there are huge changes. Um, you know, we go from uh, someone... Everyone, everyone drives manual transmission cars to suddenly everyone's driving nicer cars um, with, or cars with automatic transmissions. You go from one book and Quill is on a landline and the next book he has a cell phone. She simply mm. updates it she, without making a big deal about it, with the possible exception of Quill getting a cell phone. That was a little bit of a big deal um, because the way that she gets away with it, I think, is the fact that Quill is a technophobe, as Braun was herself. Okay, okay. She, it's, it's noted at least in one interview that she always writes her books in longhand. She would actually write them out on a pad of paper and then type them up on a typewriter, eventually a word processor, but mostly a typewriter throughout this or handed them off to somebody else to type. Even in her later, like in the 90s. Even in her later years. Wow. It's like George R. R. Martin writing all the books on a, an MS-DOS computer to not be distracted by everything else. That's exactly. So by holding on to that technophobe element mm-hmm. of Quill, it means that you can slow down the process of time wherever you are. And that means, you know, Quill might still be dealing with um, quite Quill might still be learning to text while the rest of while the rest of the town are on smartphones and she can absolutely write in smartphones she could have absolutely written in smartphones Mm -hmm. if she if she'd still been writing at this point although 15 years later she would have been uh, almost 120 so I think part of that may also make the stories more timeless in that regards too exactly exactly and I think that's also part of what makes them satisfying you're going to a place where time moves a little bit more slowly and that can be a really nice escape to have. Here's a big question: Why anyone wants to do a podcast? <laughs> why are you doing? Why do we want to do this podcast? I realized I had a lot to say about these books. Um, <laughs> I'd been doing uh, a tracking of my reading for the last couple of years, just little uh, hashtags on Facebook that would pop up. Hashtag what Susan read. <laughs> yes. Hashtag what Susan read. Good and bad, just talking about what I had been reading, and I tend to read very quickly. So there, so we would go weeks, and then I'd give you a spate of the four books I'd read in the last uh, four weeks since I talked. But I realized as I was, as I picked up one of these to reread, I suddenly had a lot to say about it. And when I mentioned it on Facebook, suddenly I had fifteen people ranging from people I knew in high school to people I knew in grad school to people I've been friends with my entire life to people I just met who all had something to say about the Cat Who books. And I realized that they really span the entirety of my life. Mm -hmm. And that makes it something very interesting to talk about and look at how they progress. Mm -hmm. So I thought it would be fun since it's it's the one thing I haven't really checked off on my pandemic bingo card to, (laughs) to do a podcast and do something that has a finite ending Period. It's not that I'm going to try and do a do a book podcast, and as long as people will let me, I'm. I like doing the. I like the idea of just doing one series, especially one, especially when you consider that one, it's one as long as this one is. This is, this is going to take us a bit. No, absolutely. It's not going to just be five books, one and done. That's it. We're doing a Lord of the Rings podcast. Uh, three episodes, and that's it. <laughs> it. But it's also not going to be like you said. Yes, just a long, expansive. Well, let's read every mystery book ever written. That would be. Oh, that would take far too long and be far too arduous. Yes. And in the interest of full disclosure, it should be noted that I will be doing the actual reading. Uh, Luke will join me on a book if there's an audiobook available, but uh, I I simply read far too quickly. 
She, um, this is very true. It's been something that has always impressed me, uh, very much so. And it's also something that uh, I admire about her very much. And she also does not, unlike some people who are purists, does not make fun of me or hold it against me that audiobooks are my preferred method of retaining. Absolutely not. And actually, one of the things that's going to get talked that I'd like to talk about is uh, the wonderful audio artists that they hired to read these books because there are some great names in there. Oh, yeah. And I absolutely listened to these on audiobooks when I would be doing long drives. Mm -hmm. um, for a while, uh, when I, I had a, a boyfriend who lived eight hours away from me, and I needed something to listen to while I would make that drive. Sure. So Cat Who books were great. And Dick Van Patten's one of the, one of the readers. <laughs> I'm so excited to get to that one. Exactly. Now, some of the original books, um, at least the first three, I believe, are not available in digital audio format. So it'll just be me reading those. But once we get to uh, books that are available in digital audio format so that Luke can uh, listen to them and kind of catch up, then we'll both be talking about our opinions of, of reading these books mm -hmm. and, and, and the various formats in which we read them. Mm-hmm. And for me doing this, it's mostly a chance. Uh, it's something for us to do together, which is nice. And it's also uh, something that'll be nice to have a finite. I've dabbled in podcasts. I've done a couple that I still keep talking about reviving. With this way, I have someone who can help hold me accountable. And we can hold each other accountable as we're going through this series. And I love a good mystery. Huge fan of Columbo. Huge fan of Christie. So this will be fun to see a different perspective and a different take on it as well. Now, for those who maybe, uh, if you're reading along with us, we love you and thank you so much for that. What is the very first book in the series? Well, the first book we're going to be starting off is the the absolute original, the 1966, The Cat Who Could Read Backwards. I cannot wait. <laughs> I think it's going to be fun. It is. This is just, uh, this is the inaugural one. We wanted to do kind of just a background of Lillian Jackson Braun or uh, LJB, LBJ. <laughs> no, we won't, we won't call her that. Uh, of Miss uh, of Miss Braun, Miss Jackson Braun. And so we're going to, of course, record the next episode, The Cat Who Read Backwards. And we've got some different uh, surprises along the way we're going to incorporate. We've got some guests coming, maybe. and Well, not maybe. We know for sure. We know for sure some guests are going to be coming along. Uh, like I said, once I mentioned that I, was, that I was looking to do this, everyone kept saying, oh, I love those books. Well, here's your chance to talk about them. Well, are there any final thoughts before we do uh, wrap up this introduction episode to our author? I don't think so. So thank you all for listening to The Cat Who Did a Podcast. And join us next time for the first book in the series, The Cat Who Could Read Backwards. Thank you. I'm Luke Ramsdorf-Terry. And I'm Susan Ramsdorf-Terry. And happy sleuthing. <laughs>